Welcome to Story Story Night, where you hear true stories on a theme recorded live in Boise, Idaho. I'm your host, Jody Eichelberger. We are rebooting in our 12th season by returning to themes from our first season, and on this podcast, our featured storytellers share stories inspired by the theme, Rebellion, Stories of You Say You Want a Revolution. Both our featured storytellers, Dalton Dagondion Teagues and Ty Simpson, are sharing stories on our show for the first time. It's story time. Dalton Dagondon Teagues uh, hails from the Philippines. That's a lot of white people. <laughs> um, thanks for having me, y'all. Um, before I tell my well, this is still a part of my story, but context, because American education system has failed all of you <laughs> in letting you know what happens here and also internationally. Um, so in 1897, a hundred years before I was born, the Philippines declares war against Spain, and we declare ourselves a nation independent of Spain. Spain was going through the Spanish-American War at that time, um, and then uh, we were sold after declaring ourselves independent and having already built the legislative systems that we wanted to rule under. And then we were sold for $1.1 million along with Guam and Puerto Rico to the United States. Pretty much looked the same, uh, subjugation and rule, uh, but this time in English, uh, not in Spanish. <laughs> I write jokes for me. <laughs> um, and then uh, in 1899, my people start another rebellion. This time, this rebellion was not successful. Over one million people die within six months of the campaign, or America's campaign against my people. And I share these two moments uh, in history because it's what destabilized my people. An example would be, during the American Revolution, my people died uh, of famine. But the Spanish had ruined our connection to land to be able to feed for ourselves. So it was one after the other, choose your own colonizer. <laughs> and then, <laughs> I promise I'll take this seriously. Uh, and then in 1941, uh, the next thing, the next important thing is, uh, the Japanese invasion of the Philippines. Uh, very violent. Uh, again, also the Americans come and try to save us. I stay forever the white man's burden. And, <laughs> okay, I'll take this seriously. This time for real. But the most important part about 1941 is that it introduces capitalism to the Philippines. We were subject to, um, as uh, export for labor, um, as people and our resources was being stolen, and just like human labor is so cheap in the Philippines. A pause there, and then it starts with my grandmother. She's about 16 during the Japanese invasion, and her and her friends decide that they want to do something about it. 
So they lure all the Japanese men, or not all of them, because war. Uh, <laughs> they lure the Japanese men into the forest and jump from the canopies and then slit their throats uh, as to protect the island and land that they are on. That's the family I come from. Stay on your toes. <laughs> um, but let me tell you a little bit about my grandma. Um, my grandma is one of nine children. She is the eldest uh, of nine children, so she took care of her younger siblings as, uh, as uh, like a lot of brown and black people do around the world. <laughs> and then um, my grandma, also a rebellionist, was betrothed to somebody else uh, and then <laughs> decides on the day of the ceremony that she wanted to jump on the back of a horse with somebody else and get married. And that's my grandfather. <laughs> um, and then my grandma chooses to have, I like think, chooses to have 11 children. That's a lot. <laughs> um, and then the ninth person, uh, the ninth baby that she has is my mother. Uh, my mother survives a lot of things. Uh, one of the things is polio. Um, even after getting the vaccine from being the white man's burden. <laughs> <laughs> Writing jokes for yourself is an act of rebellion. <laughs> um, and so uh, she is uh, made disabled, uh, not being able to move, not being able to like fend for herself because all four of her limbs were um, deformed. Um, another story for a different time, but somehow the ocean heals my mother. Um, and uh, it strains her relationship to her mom. Mom was competing for attention for, from 11 kids, but also the most favorite child uh, of her partner. Not healthy, of course. I don't want anybody to do that in their communities. And then um, it continues a line of violence uh, that was presented before us and what presented after us. My mom is um, my mom is not foreign to violence. Like she has scars uh, because she was chased by machete uh, with her mom. Um, she has scars because of her siblings. Um, these are very normal circumstances after a post after a country is colonized by two three nations. My mom also lives with her brother who is very abusive, but she has so much love and admiration for. But he doesn't get the uh, opportunities to think about parenting, uh, but he only knows violence as a part of way taking care of people. And so, like, I'm not dissolving, like, I'm not trying to separate violence or the accountability from him in terms of violence. Um, it's just how colonialism and imperialism impacts uh, your families. And then one day, my mom begins to start feeling good. Uh, she's recovered three of the four limbs that she has, uh, and then wants to move outside of her home and move to the big city of Manila. 
Um, so she picks a fight <laughs> with both her mother and her brother, because that's the kind of mother she is, and I'm kind of similar. <laughs> Stay in your toes. <laughs> uh, and moves to the big city. Uh, she finds a very wealthy family. They give her opportunities to work uh, as first a domestic house worker or domestic worker, live in domestic worker, uh, so basically a maid. And um, everything's fine for the first two years. She's this little girl, <laughs> she's 16, uh, and then she just like is fascinated by the city. She moves her way up uh, and starts to do clerical stuff for the, family, the wealthy family. One of those, um, one day, my mom is sexually assaulted by the child of the owner of the company. And it happens more than once. And that's how I come into this world. My mother had no one, and because she was very stubborn, didn't ask her family for help. Nobody believed my mom. Not her friends, not the people she was related to and lived in the city with her and definitely not the sister of the person who sexually assaulted her. But then, a few months before she was about to give birth, uh, before her 21st birthday on June 9th, um, the sister of the person who sexually assaults my mom offers to buy me as a child so that I could be raised by a family with means to go through higher education and be successful. My mom <laughs> thought this was so offensive. She packs her stuff and then moves out of the home. She doesn't know how to pay for bills at this time. She goes to the hospital, has a baby on her own, passes out, and there's no one there when she wakes up uh, to help her support. She has to pawn her jewelry <laughs> to be able to pay for the hospital bill because the hospital won't let you leave without the baby or with the baby if you haven't paid your bill. Capitalism, I know. <laughs> and then two days after her 21st birthday on June 9th, I am born into this world. I was born to a single mom uh, who was very shunned at this time. It's very common for single moms at this point to commit suicide because it's very, sh very socially not acceptable to be without a man, a legacy of colonialism. And then my mom decides to bite the bullet <laughs> and she returns home. She doesn't tell her mom and Somehow, in the middle of a hurricane season, in a little boat, she finds her way back to our island, and she goes home and walks home five miles. She tells me, <laughs> anytime when I have to walk, um, <laughs> five miles to see her mom and live with her mom. 
her mom welcomes her back. They start repairing their relationships, and I am a product of that. I am a product not only of violence, I am a product of my mom and her mom repairing violence, repairing harm and violence. She repairs her relationship with her brother, um, and then he starts doing his own little thing because he can't have children. The men in our family are cursed. (laughs) Inappropriate. And during that time, while she heals and um, restores her relationship to her brother and her mother, she was very honest in raising me, uh, because I noticed that I didn't have a dad and other people had dads. As a child of rape, you don't get a story told for you. I am not a product of two people who were very happy and made a baby. I am not a product of uh, two people who had too much tequila and had a happy accident. Those stories, stories of liberation, stories of rebellion aren't told of children of rape. No one tells stories of children of rape. And it is because that children, have, of, uh, children of rape have to tell stories themselves. No one else can tell this story but me. And so some, uh, my mom marries an American. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, he's great, great dad. He's passed on, uh, <laughs> adopts me, uh, takes us to Idaho. And then I just can't help thinking every time that, like, I try to explain my job to my grandmother. (laughs) There's not really translations between Bisaya and English to make that translation. Um, I also don't know what I'm doing (laughs) in my job. Um, But I can tell my grandmother one thing. I tell her I move and work and exist in a world so that I can move collectively, all of us, towards a world without violence. A world where everybody can thrive. A world where everybody eats, has everything they need to reach their fullest potential. So, story ends here. My grandma would never, or like my great grandma would never know about me speaking in front of these people in a totally different language. She could not imagine this despite being the beautiful soul that she was. I am a product of not just rape, I am a product of a rebellion, a continued sustained resistance to violence that my people experienced.
And I hope that you will join me in this journey to move towards a world without violence so everyone can live and, be, uh, and reach their fullest potential. Thank you. Ty Simpson. Thank you. Uh, Ty doesn't mean the storyteller. Atit watit in my language means the storyteller. I always try to, I always try to uh, clarify that for you. Um, she and I were sister cousins, and not in that like creepy Appalachian hillbilly way, but like, <laughs> like the deep ancestral indigenous way. We share uh, her grandmother and my grandmother are sisters. We share moms. We were raised together as cousins and as siblings and sister cousins. Um, and she was the favorite. God, I couldn't stand that shit. Um, <laughs> I mean, but here's what happened. Like, so she gets to like live on the res and be with our grams all the time. And I didn't get to do that. I, I lived in Chicago and Singapore and I lived in all these really cool places around the world. I only spent the occasional holiday and my summers with my grams. She got them all the time, all year long. Still can't stand that heifer. Um, as the favorite, I mean, she was celebrated for her really long, gorgeous, beautiful black hair and her bright smile and her round, beautiful cheeks. And, and she always got the best hand-me-downs, right? Um, in a tribe and in our indigenous community, hand-me-downs aren't about toys or like old furniture or old clothes. I'm talking about the hand-me-downs that have survived generations of genocide, of displacement, of settler colonialism. It is the, the hand-me-downs that are our brain-tanned, smoked buckskin hide, the beads, the handful of beads that we traded entire horse herds for. She had those dresses, the softest buckskin, the smell of smoke, these old glassy beads that told the story of our rape and of our violence and of our pain. But they're beautiful. Beautiful, intricately done artwork that tells the story of our women, of our matriarchy, of Nimi Puha'ayet, Nez Perce women. She was the favorite. She got that beadwork and those dresses and that beautiful woven basket hat. I didn't, I got, you know, like, I mean, my stuff is pretty cool, but not that cool. <laughs> um, even her name, our names are hand me downs, past generation to generation. Her name is Wet Kuis. She who returns from a far land. Her name was incredible. I was hella jealous, the hella envious cousin. And we would spend a lot of time with each other at like Sweat and at Pow Wow during the summer. And at Sweat House, like she would sit next to her gram and then my gram would plop my ass in the dirty girl's corner of the Sweat House the corner reserved for the girls who smell like colonizers. Yo. <laughs> and I still sit in that corner, to be completely honest. I live in Boise, Idaho. Let's be serious. Um, and my mom makes sure that I sit in that corner. Um, it had been a really long time since I had seen her. Too long, I think. It was a 
early November morning and the community had gathered together and we were telling stories about her and how she had moved up river and was taking care of her family, raising a bonus kid, taking care of uh, his grandparents, working in a bar. And in that bar, she used to tell jokes and give advice but never take her own advice. It had been too long since I had seen her. Stories of her in the bar were much to the chagrin of our gram. I could kind of feel her cringe as I sat next to her. But don't get it twisted, my gram was ratchet too. Like she used to spend her time at like uh, Pendleton Roundup, y'all been to Pendleton Roundup, and she used to like pickpocket cowboys. <laughs> yeah. And that was back when, that was back when the rodeo purse was cash, y'all. <laughs> That's who I'm from, descendant. <laughs> Uh, she was so positive and joyful. She was just the most amazing young woman, and we were so happy to celebrate her. She was a language keeper. Of course she was a language keeper, because she was the favorite. She was raised by her gram, and her gram was a language keeper. And that was just another reason for me to be jealous and envious, to be raised by our matriarch, a walking, talking encyclopedia of our language and of our land and of our culture. We heard another story that day, one of my favorite stories actually, of our uncle, who wrote a song for her for powwow. Of course she got a song, of course she's the favorite. But she um, couldn't, she always got confused at powwow. She didn't know if she wanted to dance or if she wanted to sing. So because my uncle is who he is and because she's the favorite, he would sing it twice in one powwow, which is unheard of, once so she could dance and once so she could sing with him. Must be nice to be the favorite. <laughs> It had been too long since I had seen her. Uh, that morning, she was bright as usual, her beautiful long black eyelashes fanning her cheeks, her beautiful long black hair tucked under a tuchmal, or grandma scarf as we call it in my language. Again, wearing her beautiful hand-me-downs. The smell of smoked hide mixed with cedar, mixed with flowers. But on that morning, we viewed in horror cuts and bruises on her face, a bruise the size of a fist under her right eye, a perfect imprint of a bruise the size of a hand on her neck where she was strangled. Cuts and bruises on her own hands, a way of her showing us that she rebelled against the violence that took her life. She rebelled. And we didn't help her. None of us helped her. Our Graham made sure that we all saw 1,500 Nimipu to token, 1,500 Nez Perce people idling slowly by that beautiful cedar box with her beautiful hand-me-down buckskin dress. Our Graham made sure that we saw rebelling against the cultural norm around shame and silence. She showed us loudly 
what it looks like to fight, to love, to be in a place of desperation. She showed us what rebellion looks like. The sorrow of my sister cousin's journey caused a stroke in our gram. And she took her own journey only two months later. Only a few cold mornings after my birthday, she too was laid in her hand-me-downs. Beautiful old glass beads, tiny bells, smoked buckskin hide. Each of us unpacked our hand-me-downs, generations old, dresses and fringe, feathers. And we sang seven songs on seven drums for seven rounds, rebelling against the night as we sang her warrior song and journeyed her home. This Graham was one of several matriarchs in my family each of them ancestors now, each of them telling a powerful story with the life that they lived. And in those stories, showing me how I can use their experiences with violence to put an end to it in my own community and in my own life. I fly to Coeur d'Alene next week to testify at a sentencing hearing in federal court. My sister cousin's perpetrator is being sentenced there and it is a really horrible opportunity for my people to grasp violently at revenge, hold on to their pain and to their anger and put it somewhere and put it on someone. My people demand violence in response to violence because for centuries that's all we've ever known in the face of settler colonialism. We have known no other way. But I choose rebellion, I choose healing, I choose humanity and I choose life because that's what wet cooies would have wanted. And that's what our Graham would have wanted. Rejuvenating old ways. Who were we before all we knew was violence? He chose to use violence. Violence is a symptom of pain, and pain is a symptom of trauma. And our trauma is the fallout of settler colonialism, and I choose rebellion against it. Rebellion in life or in death is to hold humanity. It is to choose or nurture or create circumstances that allow for forgiveness and healing and truth and justice and love. So in that statement next week, when I stand in front of a federal justice, I will tell them this story and how we loved her and how I was jealous of her magic. I will tell them, and in the same deep kinship that makes her and I sister cousins, I will tell her about the deep kinship that makes her gram my gram and vice versa. That that deep kinship is the same thing that connects me to him also.
It was an act of rebellion for wet cooies to fight back, and I'm proud of her for it. It was an act of rebellion for Graham to show us, to show the whole community what it looks like if we're complacent in the face of violence. And it will be my act of defiance and rebellion to champion for his life, for his healing, for her justice, for his justice, and for our collective revolution towards a world without violence. Thank you. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to see the storytellers, in addition to hearing them, this entire show is available on the Story Story Night YouTube channel. Support this podcast by texting STORYPOD to 44321. Story Story Night receives support from the Boise Arts and History Department and is funded in part by the Idaho Commission on the Arts and the National Endowment for the Arts. Thank you to our media sponsor, Radio Boise, and our season sponsor, The Boise Group. Podcast production is by Stephen Baldessari. Our theme song was composed by Dan Costello. You can rate and review this show on Apple Podcasts. Have a story? Call the storyline at 208-917-1970 and leave a message. Please subscribe to Story Story Night on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you download your podcast. Find out how to participate in our live show at storystorynight.org or visit us on Facebook. I'm Jody Eichelberger. Thanks for being a part of our story.